This is Science Moab, a radio show exploring the science and learning about the scientists from the Colorado Plateau. I'm Christina, and on today's show, we explore the shape and processes of streams and rivers from high up in the Andes to right here in Moab. It's a good show. Stay with us. I just fell in love with it. I fell in love with water, rivers. We all need it. probably is our most important resource. Uh, And a lot of people treat it as renewable. There's been a a lot of shift away from that thought, especially amongst hydrologists and geomorphologists. It's just fascinating to me. It's a very important resource. It's a cycle that never stops. Today on Science Moab, we're talking to Christopher Ely about a field called geomorphology, which looks at the physical structures of the Earth's surface. We hear about Chris's work surveying Amazonian headwater streams in the Andes of southern Ecuador, and how he's taken the tools he learned while studying these high-elevation streams and applied them to studying salt loads in our rivers here in Moab. We also talk about some of the ways geomorphologists use technology to visualize the structure of streams and rivers. We begin our interview with Chris explaining what it means to be a geomorphologist. Geomorphology, it's, it's, the definition is kind of in the name, geo, the earth, and morphology, the shape, the study of the shape of the earth, and more specifically, how landscapes evolve and change over time. So you've worked surveying the geomorphology of different areas around the world. Uh, That's correct. Primarily in the southern Appalachian mountains uh, in western North Carolina. And my thesis work was a geomorphic characterization of a small headwater river in the Ecuadorian Andes. What are you trying to ask when you are interested in the geomorphology of a place? Geomorphology, especially fluvial geomorphology, there's different types, different subdisciplines. Um, so fluvial refers to rivers. And so well, what we were primarily interested in is sediment transport. This particular ecosystem has uh, is very important, very poorly studied. It's the Paramo of the neotropics of the northern Andes. Uh, it's an alpine grassland located above the tree line, and uh, it has very important linkages downstream to the Amazon basin. So I was, it's actually a, I was in the very tip top of the Amazon basin. Cool. Uh, but the Ecuadorian government is planning on building a dam on this particular river. There's actually a very large dam building campaign in South America right now. As opposed to where we have very large dams, uh, kind of centrally located, there's been a shift towards smaller, more dispersed dams. So more understudied areas are being impacted. Uh, So this was kind of a research trip to document the pre-existing conditions as they are before they build a dam to better influence 
management downstream of the dam uh, and to get a, a kind of an idea of how global linkages will be impacted with regards to the Amazon, with regards to sediment, nutrient, and even water volumes transported downstream and uh, uh, organic carbon transport so that we could help uh, train the carbon cycle as well with some of this data. How are you collecting these data and um, what is being out there in the Andes actually look like? It was pretty incredible. We had to pack all of our equipment in on a horse uh, into our primitive camp, which was dirt floors and grass huts. Uh, but the, the work itself consisted of uh, topographic surveys, so uh, measuring elevation changes in the shape of the river uh, with the stadia rod and a, a level, uh, as well as measuring the diameter of the sediment on the, the, the substrate of the river to uh, inform the volume or of water flow discharge. Can you explain to me what that means a little more? Uh, there's mathematical equations relating the, the volume of water to the median sediment size of, of the river. The sediment size as in the size? The, the size of uh, ranging from sands up to boulders, oh, okay. especially in this type of environment. Very cool. And so those are the kind of things that you were out there physically doing in these headwaters. Yes. What do the conditions tend to be like in these high Indian streams? Well, there's a lot of spatial variability in mountainous areas. Uh, the southern uh, is very cool and wet. You wouldn't think that for being two degrees south of the equator where we were, but uh, temperatures rarely got above 60, and typical lows were in the the 30s. We were there in the dry season and it rained every day. So that'll give you some kind of idea of that. How much water were in these streams? Uh, not much where we were because we're very, you know, the volume of a river is related to the catchment area or the, the drainage basin above that point. So there really wasn't much area for rain to collect. And most of the rainfall events were uh, low intensity, so like a drizzle, just a constant drizzle. Okay. Although we were, you know, there, it does get have pretty intense events as well, especially in the wet season. The road was completely washed out. We, we had two trips, and in the interim, the, the road was washed away the yeah. second time. Based on what you know about geomorphology and what you've seen in these streams, do you have any hypotheses about what how a dam might influence what you've seen out there that area is prone to sedimentation so what does that mean that means a lot of sediment will accumulate in behind the dam which has uh, a few implications one the life of the dam uh, is not going to last very long because the amount of water it can hold will be replaced by sediment uh, and that sediment will be stored instead of being transported downstream where like, the Amazon forest is you know, one of the most biodiverse areas in the world. And it relies uh, in large part on sediments contributed, sediments and nutrients originating and contributed from these headwater areas. Not so unlike our streams and rivers here in the southwest. Very, very similar uh, 
know, headwater areas around the world are typical of that. Um, this particular ecosystem is very strange just because there is a lot of soil in the headwater areas, several feet above you know, our study area. It was located above 10,000 feet elevation, and there was probably uh, at least a foot and a half of topsoil. Wow. That, which, if you know anything about soil, that's pretty incredible. So, and that soil is very important for millions of people in the area. Uh, the, there, uh, there aren't many dams in the area already, and there are very few groundwater reservoirs. So, uh, a lot of the local population is almost entirely dependent on surface water for their consumption, irrigation, and increasingly electricity production. You mentioned that understanding and surveying the geomorphology can tell you things about carbon cycling? Sediment transport. And if you know the amount of sediment that's leaving a system and you know the amount of carbon within the soils or the sediment, you can have some kind of idea of the uh, carbon transport out of the system to the oceans eventually. There's a lot more work and a lot of space, you know, almost an entire continent of travel uh, that that sediment has to uh, cross to get to the ocean and all kinds of random events influence that. But uh, you can have some kind of idea of what these headwater areas are contributing. Why does carbon transport through a system matter? We know that carbon is a greenhouse gas, very important. Um, for climate modeling and influences the climate, but our understanding of the carbon cycle is limited. Uh, so the more we know about all the different aspects of that cycle, the better we can train our models and help model climate. I'm curious, when you come back from the field and you have all this data, um, what kind of analyses do you do to try to understand the landscape that you've been working in? Well, for my work, there wasn't a lot of geovisualization, but the analysis was uh, mathematic, mathematical. Uh, we were relating the, the shapes of the river to the area, contributing area above it, um, and well, to other aspects as well. That was kind of more of a mathematical analysis relating our measurements. Over the past 50 or 60 years, some mathematical relationships have been developed. So we were calculating those relationships for our data and comparing that uh, to other global systems. Um, oh, so it's kind of a visualization of uh, the curve of our variables. Um, cool. So that's so the, the way you understand and put your your streams in the high Andes in context as you compare them to other streams and other systems? Yes. Oh, cool. But for what, the work my advisors currently work on, we use some high-precision precision GPS, and we uh, mapped the length of the river, so we were able to kind of make a map of areas prone to erosion or um, more stable areas as well, which provided for some neat visualizations. Yeah, tell me more about that. So you also work with geovisualizations. And so uh, tell me what that means first. Geovisualization 
again in the name, refers to visualizing the Earth or your spatial data. Um, so a lot of the Earth sciences and natural sciences, we collect data, uh, and it's very important to know uh, how those patterns are represented spatially. Visualizing our data is probably the easiest and most efficient way that we as humans can interpret it. Can you give me some more examples of how you have used geovisualization? Probably my favorite and the most fun thing to work with was uh, LIDAR, terrestrial laser scanning. So it's kind of like radar, but using light and lasers. So that's pretty neat. We were able to collect a very dense point cloud, that's what it's called. So each point is a laser return. It's mapped using the speed of light. Or the, the, you calculate distance and shapes using how fast the light is transmitted and returned to your sensor. And that provided some, some really neat visualizations. Uh, Abert, we were able to map the stretch of a Appalachian headwater uh, with incredible detail. We had uh, like over or upwards of 300 million points for about 100 yards of stream. So uh, we were able to map with a point every centimeter, which is pretty incredible. Uh, and that's only at the resolution we were able to, to process the data at. Wow. What kind of questions can you ask or answer with that kind of data? You can have, well, with the centimeter precision like we had, you can have, or point spacing, you can more rapidly collect and more efficiently collect a greater area than you know surveying the, the shape of the river with geomorphic applications uh, and with greater accuracy. So instead of investing in the time to survey uh, several cross-sections individually using a laser scanner per, per cross-section, you can collect the whole length of, of a stream and even they're mounting these sensors on UAVs or drones to the public and that's having some really neat applications and we're getting to the point where you can even do some of the same work using the cameras on your iPhone. Wow. Yeah. Has there been anything that you have been able to visualize by using these this cool new technology that has surprised you? Uh, not so much 3D, but using you know, GIS, geographic information systems. Uh, it's using a computer to manipulate spatial data or using information collected in the field you can visualize it much more easily when it's in a map form instead of a spreadsheet and you can do all kinds of neat visualizations with that uh, and some of some of the more surprising things that surprised me with that is more accurate or more better resolution isn't always worth your investment you can achieve some of the similar results using less refined sensors in certain areas. So that was informative for me. Know that you don't need to use the best and most advanced stuff to you know, perform your analysis. So maybe that was counterintuitive to totally. what we wanted to hear. Totally. But. That's super interesting. Are there other examples of things that you have turned from numbers into visualizations or, or ways that you can look at spatial data that are, are cool to you? Yeah, absolutely. Probably my favorite was uh, in my undergrad experience. I worked on a, a magnetic survey, which was pretty neat. 
It was really neat. Using we were recording the Earth's magnetic field to look for intruded igneous rocks in the Midwest. So spent a lot of time going out in the field in miserable conditions, collecting, you know, magnetic data, which is pretty neat in itself. And I remember the first time coming back into the the lab and processing the data and visualizing it and going, Whoa, look at all these spatial patterns that I am seeing. Uh with, especially with regards to, you know, you're out there and you actually see your, see what you're looking for. That was really neat, really exciting. What ways can you envision or are you currently using these tools to work around Moab? I'm currently uh, mapping soil properties over the extent of much of the Colorado Plateau, the uh, Colorado River watershed above Lake Mead. Uh, we're mapping with pretty fine resolution for a study area that's about 5% of the lower 48 United States. Uh, and the fine resolution is informing um, suspect areas or areas prone to erosion and high salt salinity yields that might contaminate the Colorado River. Oh, that's really interesting. Is there a lot of salt going into our rivers? We are currently in violation of the treaty with Mexico for salt loads in the Colorado River. So my work is funded by the BLM uh, with a hopes to kind of identify fairly easily and uh, efficiently problem areas over the, the watershed where they can focus their mitigation efforts. Based on what you know about soils and geomorphology, do you have... Um guesses as to what soil types or what areas might be contributing to um, salt and sediment into our rivers? Well, the, there is uh, higher than average probably background loads, just the area is pretty salty, uh, being a desert, uh, which in itself contributes to salinity in the Colorado River. But my guess would be that heavily disturbed areas would contribute more sediment. And if those disturbances happen to occur in areas that have high salinity in the soil to begin with, then that would be the place to focus your mitigation efforts. Do you know what kind of mitigation efforts are um, that BLM could use to deal with some of these problems? Uh, they've been doing um, like silt fencing, just trying to trap the sediment before it uh, leaves the area too much, silt fencing, retention ponds, that sort of thing. I couldn't speak too much of the, the soil mitigation. I don't know what they're doing to solve the problem. I know what they're doing to kind of stop the problem. Why are desert soils notoriously salty? Well, this area in particular used to be uh, an ocean over 100 million years ago. This was uh, an inland sea. Uh, and you get as an inland sea, but also kind of a dry area in the intercontinent. Um, so you get evaporation, and as ocean water evaporates, the water leaves, but the salt remains. So uh, as the oceans retreated, a lot of that salt was deposited. And a lot of the local topography is a result of uh, the salt deposition and deformation. Interesting. And why don't we like salt in our rivers? 
Why is salt bad? Too much salt is toxic for human consumption and for the natural environment. I'm curious what got you interested in studying geomorphology? Well, growing up, everybody, I'm from Chicago originally, and everybody told me I was going to be a great lawyer. I think they were just calling me a jerk, but I, I switched over to the sciences halfway through my college career, and I just fell in love with it. I just fell in love with water, rivers. We all need it. probably is our most important resource, uh, and a lot of people treat it as renewable. There's been a, a lot of shift away from that thought, especially amongst hydrologists and geomorphologists. Yeah, it's just fascinating to me. It's a very important resource. It's a cycle that never stops. And what do you enjoy about being a scientist? I'm often wrong, and that's very good for my ego. Thank you so much for this interview. It's been super cool to hear about the work that you've done and about the geomorphology of our rivers. Great. Thanks for having me. You can listen again to Science Moab on kzmu.org or by downloading the Science Moab podcast on iTunes. The music for our show is written by Jeremy Spaulding, and the show is produced by Christina Young and KZMU.